0: Hi, friends. It's Annie. Thanks so much for listening to the Fresh Hell podcast. With me, as always, is the
1: lovely Johanna. Hey, girl. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything is well here. Summer is coming. How are you? What's new with you? I have been
0: experiencing a little bit of fresh hell myself. I've been uh. trying to find a bathing suit
1: on the internet. <laughs> Oh God, when you just said that now, I thought something horrible happened and you didn't tell me about
0: it. Jana, it's pretty horrible. I got to tell you, it's grim. Steroids have ravaged this body. I spent the first half of my life with a body where I was like an ironing board with a head. I was just this like long lean. People would say to me all the time, are you a dancer? And I'd say, yes, I'm not a dancer. I'm a terrible dancer. I was just really skinny and flat chested. And I thought... Yes, I'm a ballerina. Sure, let them think (laughs) that. But now I finally got the curves I wanted. They're just not where I expected them to be. So the struggle is real. Bathing suit shopping online is a little bit demoralizing. Especially, I just got three new boxes from Amazon today of like tankini's. Please, baby
1: Jesus, let one of them fit. I don't know. I have to say I love, love, love online clothes shoppings. You know why? Because I I hate to go out and, you know, all this in the crowded places. And then you have to look at all the fucking clothes there. And then you have to pick them and you try them on. And I never do that. I always just take the clothes and I buy them and I try them on at home. And if they don't fit, I bring them back. Online shopping is like... God's gift to me I love it but yeah I agree you sometimes you have to order a lot of it's different just bathing kinds, yeah. suits in general it's just such a bummer and they're
0: all yeah. made you know all the ones on Amazon because I'm just trying not to spend $200 on a bathing suit which yeah. is usually what happens I give up and I go to the expensive separates place and buy something that's essentially in you know mid-1800s girdle Um, that just, then it's hidden under a fucking ruffle down the front, you know, just to distract the eye a little bit while this boning holds the rest of my body in the shape it's supposed to be in. I thought, yeah, for 25 bucks, let's just see if I can find a cheap one, but it's not going great so far. But no, I order everything online. My favorite is actually zappos.com. This is not an ad, but I have incredibly wide feet. They're like flippers. I'm a very good swimmer. I, it's a nightmare. I have like a double E foot. (sighs) (sighs) So...
1: your your second career choice would have been clown
0: yes yeah that would have actually probably been a solid choice for me if they weren't so absolutely
1: terrifying <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit early for summer season why do you need oh, a bathing yeah, yeah. now you want to be
0: prepared or right I of course you know how bad my memory is the whole point of me telling you that was we're getting ready to go on a trip yeah, it's a little ways away. We're going to Aruba uh, to celebrate my little sister's 40th birthday.
1: Wasn't that
0: the place where this girl disappeared? What was her name? Oh, that was Natalie Holloway. I think I'll probably cover that case only because of this trip we're taking. While we're there, I'm gonna, I'll be posting on our Instagram if I can. So, yeah, well, less exciting than that is getting back into the horrible, horrible story of the death of the Lindbergh baby. Uh, Hey, Uh I think that's
1: pretty exciting, actually. I know, I know.
0: It's Yeah, I really thought when I was looking into this initially that, you know, once you got to the point where they found the body, it was like, oh, well, that was kind of the end of the story. Last week, we posted part one. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back now and listen to part one so that the rest of this will make sense.
1: Okay, so we left off with the body of Lindbergh Jr. being found. Now please, please, please tell us everything about the investigation. So the police still think that there must have been someone involved on
0: the inside.
1: Um, It does seem that whoever did this had really inside knowledge though, because they knew the baby was home that week and where the room was exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How
0: else would somebody, unless they were just lucky, (laughs) which is possible. So on June 10th, 1932, the police, who are still led by Colonel Schwarzkopf, I think it's the fourth time they go to visit a woman by the name of Violet Sharp. Violet was a waitress in the home of Mrs. Lindbergh's mother, Mrs. Morrow.
1: Yeah, the family had been living at Anne's parents' home during the week, so that... Basically, it makes a lot of sense. Did they think she was involved? Well,
0: they thought someone, either in the Lindbergh or the Morrow residences, had to have been involved for the reasons you just mentioned. But also, they thought it was possible that someone had maybe just casually, accidentally mentioned something to the wrong person. Mm -hmm. You know, like, not that anybody was involved in the sense that they wanted in on it or had orchestrated it or, you know, knew that there was a kidnapping happening, just, you know, being on an errand and saying, oh, no, we're still here this week because the baby has a, you know, just something really minor. They go to uh, Violet's home. Now, she had been questioned before, as I mentioned, but she'd been a little bit cagey about where she was the night of the kidnapping. And some of her answers didn't quite match up. So they go back to question her again and when they get there she runs to her room and drinks furniture polish which contained potassium cyanide and she died rather quickly what the fuck i mean what a
1: terrible way to go wait does that mean she was indeed guilty no
0: and that's what makes it so awful so ultimately her story was investigated and she was totally cleared of any connection with the abduction she had been telling the truth the whole time so when she was giving her alibi she knew them as names that were different than their given name and so that's why it wasn't panning out that these were the people that she was with but they eventually figured out that she was telling the truth the accepted theory is also that she was just genuinely grieving the death of that baby because remember she saw them for all the meals she regularly would have seen that baby for most of the week for those almost two years she was also expecting a marriage proposal I think from another member of the household staff and that might have been why she was being cagey about the fact that she'd gone out on a date with another man because remember at this time it would have been I don't know I think it would have been different today if you were about to marry someone there's an understood level of intimacy that you would have with that person yeah Mm -hmm. but at this time I think it would not be uncommon that The man that you thought was going to ask you to marry you, you'd maybe only been on two dates with, right? And you would probably accept. It was just a different time. So I think she had gone out with someone else and didn't want him to know about it. So that's why she was being a little bit cagey and she was worried she might be fired.
1: Yeah, but that still seems like a bit of an overreaction on her side, though. And again, I guess they had no lead afterwards.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does seem like an overreaction. But I think at the time, the pressure must have been unbearable. So yeah, they didn't really have any leads. Um, Examinations of the ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in a pretty unanimous opinion that all of the notes were written by the same person and that the writer was of German nationality but had spent some time in America. So they questioned Dr. Condon at length, obviously, and he had described John, Cemetery John, as maybe being Scandinavian, and he felt that he could identify the man if he ever saw him again. So he then spent a lot of time looking at a ton of photos of possible suspects and mugshots of known criminals. The FBI retained the services of an artist to do a witness sketch of John based on the descriptions furnished by Dr. Condon and by uh, Joseph Perrone, who was a... A cab driver who had delivered one of the ransom letters to Dr. Condon. Another thing they did trying to identify who Cemetery John might have been is A bunch of agents from the New York FBI office had Dr. Condon prepare a transcript of all the conversations he had had with Cemetery John, as best as he could remember, on March 12th and on April 2nd. So those were the dates when Dr. Condon had personally contacted the kidnapper in order to negotiate the return of the baby and the payment of the ransom. In March 1934, these conversations were transcribed in detail on a phonograph done by Dr. Condon, who imitated the pronunciations and dialect. Like, so he mimicked the way John spoke. And they were hoping to preserve as much information as they could at the time. But, I mean, today we just know better than to trust that kind of eyewitness report.
1: Please. I mean, every time I read about eyewitness reports, I have to think about how I would be as an eyewitness and you could not trust me. I mean, first of all, I'm blind as Hans Molman and I refuse. I really refuse to wear my glasses outside of the house. You should just pray that I was wearing my contact lenses that day. And second, (laughs) I don't pay attention to anything like at all. Uh, A three-legged clown on a yellow unicorn could just pass me and I would have a hard time to recall it. So please pray to God or Cthulhu or whatever tickles your fancy (laughs) that you never ever need me as the number one get you out of jail witness. (laughs)
0: <laughs> You're talking to the lady yeah. who forgot she was on the bounty, so I am <laughs> with you there. Yeah. So bad. So another interesting line of investigation was all about that ladder that we talked about that was used during the crime. Police quickly realized that it was it was sort of crudely built, but it'd been built definitely by someone who had worked with wood and was mechanically inclined. The ladder was thoroughly examined for fingerprints and was exhibited to builders, carpenters, and neighbors all around the area where the Lindbergs were living but nobody recognized it. Slivers of the ladder had even been analyzed and tested and the types of wood used in the ladder were identified. They thought that maybe a complete examination of the ladder, just the ladder, by a wood expert would help to yield more clues and in early 1933 they called in Arthur Kaler. He worked for the U.S. Forest Service um, under the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So Kohler comes in and he takes this ladder apart. He disassembles it and painstakingly identified, he's the one who identified all the different kinds of wood, and he examined the tool marks. He even looked at the patterns that were made by nail holes on some of the pieces of wood. It looked like it had been used before in indoor construction and repurposed to make the ladder. Kohler made field trips to the Lindbergh Estate and to factories all over the area, lumber factories, trying to trace some of the wood, and he summarized all of his findings in this big long report what did he conclude he said that the wood used to construct the ladder came from a multitude of trees he found the ladder to contain pine from north carolina douglas fir from west of the rocky mountains birch and ponderosa pine and we have an image of the ladder that we'll share
1: okay yeah that's that's a weird looking ladder and with all those different wood types yeah they probably just used what they had lying around already
0: yeah exactly it really sounds like it There's some interesting information they have now about the latter. Now, one other thing the investigation got right is that when they prepared that ransom money, rather than using dollar bills, they used gold certificates. So about 40000 of the $50,000 was in gold certificates. They knew when they did this that the gold certificates were going to be going out of circulation soon. And like I said in uh, part one, they didn't mark the bills, but they did record all of the serial numbers. They made little pamphlets with all the serial numbers listed, and they gave them out to banks and some other places, I think, like grocery stores that dealt in very, very large amounts of cash. And gold certificates look Pretty identical to a U.S. dollar bill, just some very small differences, and we can post a photo of it there.
1: If the kidnappers were really fast, I guess they could still not be really traced because back then the banks, they were not
0: connected with each other. Exactly. No internet. It was a lot more labor intensive because about a year after the ransom was paid on April 5th, 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt, he issued an executive order that required all Americans to turn in and replace those gold certificates on or before May 1st, 1933. So during this month, between when he announced they had to be turned in and when they had to be turned in, the kidnappers did succeed in converting almost $15,000 of the ransom for the exact reason you just mentioned. The banks weren't connected and they got a Blood of currency of course right they were very very common and we weren't going to use them anymore so they just had huge amounts of currency coming in so it was understandable that the bankers couldn't remember who had converted which bills they did find the odd bill from the ransom and every effort was made to chase down every single bill but they were all dead ends until
1: yay until means something <laughs> is finally
0: going to happen and going to come up Yes, it is. All right, here we go. One twenty p.m. in the afternoon on September 18, 1934, the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company telephoned the FBI's New York City office and told them that a $10 gold certificate had been discovered a few minutes previously by one of the tellers in that bank. It didn't take long to figure out that the bill had been received at the bank from a gas station located at 127th Street and Lexington Avenue. in New York City. Big news. So they head to the gas station and what they found was this. On September 15th, 1934, a man pulls into the gas station and he pays for about a dollar's worth of gasoline using a $10 gold bill. Now the attendant is worried because they've been off the gold standard for over a year now and he's worried that the bank isn't going to accept this bill and they'll be left stuck missing the money for the gas. So just to be on the safe side, he writes down the license plate number of the customer who paid with that gold bill.
1: Well done, unknown gas station attendant. Well done. They track down the license plate number and this
0: number is issued to Bruno Richard Hauptman located at 1279 East 222nd Street in the Bronx, New York.
1: <laughs> Ta-da, a chairman! <laughs> I know!
0: Uh, so, Hotman's house was put under tight federal and local surveillance throughout the night of September 18th until approximately 9 a.m. the next morning, when an individual, closely fitting the description of Cemetery John, as supplied by Dr. Condon, and the description of the purchaser of the gasoline, as supplied by the service station attendant, leaves the house and entered his automobile parked nearby. He was then immediately arrested. So, this was indeed Friedhof Hansi. Well, we're not really sure. So, after investigating, he was found to be Bruno Richard Hauptmann, the individual to whom the automobile license had been issued. He's a German carpenter who had been in the country for about 11 years, and a $20 gold ransom certificate was also found on his person when he was arrested. His description fitted perfectly Uh, the description of Cemetery John. You remember all those builds that were dead ends? In his house, they found a pair of shoes that had been purchased with another $20 ransom bill. Recovered on September 8th. 1934. Hauptman admitted several other purchases which had been made with ransom certificates and then on the night of september 19th he was positively identified by joseph perone as the individual that he received that fifth ransom note to be delivered to dr condon he's that cab driver and then the next day they found ransom
1: certificates in excess of thirteen thousand dollars hidden in the walls of his garage Okay, I mean, that sounds pretty fishy and guilty. Or did he have a rational explanation for all the money?
0: (laughs) I love that you said it sounds fishy. So Hauptmann claimed that Isidore Fish, (laughs) a German friend, (laughs) had just sailed for Germany the previous December and then died a few months later in Germany of tuberculosis, and that he had left some of his belongings with him for safekeeping. But once his friend died, he decided to go through all of his belongings to see what was there, and that's how he found all those cold notes. Hauptmann then told investigators that he decided to spend it without ever telling his wife Anna. This reminds me of the cold, cold, cold murder you did. Can you imagine finding all that money and never saying anything to your spouse?
1: Hell no. I mean, we would be out there together living our best life. Uh, Anyway, I would have to. Tell my husband how else could I explain showing up with five beagle babies?
0: (laughs) He would love beagle babies.
1: No, he wouldn't.
0: a little howling. No, I want beagle babies. So investigators, they really grilled him and they thought he would confess, but they were disappointed. In the weeks that followed, he was really harshly interrogated, fingerprinted, he was put in lineups and made to submit handwriting samples. Meanwhile, detectives kept busy. They investigated the fish story and found it to be Fishy, I read that. So that's why after you said fishy. So I also read that on the trim of a closet in the uh, Hauptmann home, detectives noticed a smudged phone number written in pencil, and it was Dr. Condon's phone number. But I read somewhere else that that was written by a reporter, but I can't confirm that one way or another.
1: Okay, so that's not 100% certain, but there must have been way more that connected Hauptmann to the case. Well,
0: in Hauptmann's attic, investigators noticed a sawed-off board. Prosecutors would later say that Hauptmann used the board to repair that ladder found at the Lindbergh home on the night of the kidnapping. But from interviews with the Hauptmann's neighbors, a picture emerged of Hauptmann as a shy, hardworking, and frugal carpenter.
1: Uh huh, A man who knows how to work with
0: wood. Exactly. Hauptman was identified by Dr. Condon as John, to whom he had paid the ransom. And we'll post a picture. So we have a photo of uh, Richard's mugshot, and we also have a, this sketch that we'll show you side by side, so you can see what you think. It was also confirmed that he owned a Dodge sedan, which fit the description of a car seen in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home the day before the kidnapping. Shortly after his arrest, samples of Houtman's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C., where a study was made of them in the FBI laboratory. And this comes from... Um, The FBI, quote, a comparison of the writing appearing on the ransom notes with that of the specimens disclosed remarkable similarities in inconspicuous personal characteristics and writing habits, which resulted in a positive identification by the handwriting experts of the laboratory, end quote. So the FBI says it's a match. And then here's what they learned about Bruno Richard Hauptmann. He was 35 years old and he was born in Saxony, Germany. He did have a criminal record and kind of a bad one. He had used a ladder that's interesting, to break into the second-story window of the mayor's house, where he stole some money, using a ladder to break into the house of a famous person. And he'd also robbed a woman pushing a baby carriage at gunpoint, and he had spent some time in prison.
1: Another (laughs) shady German popping up in one of our stories. I know, I thought of
0: that when I pointed this out, I promise. I do not dislike the German people. I'm a fan. I like Germany. (laughs) I like your chocolate cake. Very much. That's why I'm having problems finding a bathing suit. Anyway, in early June 1923, after he broke out of prison, he stowed away on the SS Hanover at Bremen, Germany, and arrived in New York City. He was promptly arrested and deported. So then he did it again. He snuck onto another ship, did the transatlantic voyage, got caught, and got sent back again. Third time, though, that was the charm. (sighs) He successfully entered the U.S. in November of 1923 on board the George Washington. He then went on to marry Anna Schoeffler. Schaeffler? Schoffler. She was another German immigrant who came legally over and had been working as a New York City waitress. And they'd had a son, Manfred, who was born in 1933.
1: You know, that's what I like about my German friends. Such determination and ambition. Nothing can stop them if they set their mind on something. Okay, so his son was born after the kidnapping, but before the arrest. And what had Hauptmann been up to in those ten years before the arrest again?
0: Well, from the time he arrived in New York until the spring of 1932, he had worked as a carpenter. However... A short time after March 1st, 1932, the date of the kidnapping, Houtman began to trade rather extensively in the stock market and never worked again. What
1: a coincidence.
0: Isn't it, though? So, on his ninth wedding anniversary, the 10th of October, 1934, a New Jersey grand jury indicted Houtman on kidnapping and murder charges, and he was extradited to Flemington, New Jersey, where his trial commenced on the 2nd of June, 1935. As expected, media interest was insane. Journalist H.L. Mencken, very famous journalist, uh, called the trial, quote, the greatest story since the resurrection, end quote.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see that that's one epic story. It was huge. So given the high-profile
0: nature of the case, the prosecution was led by the Attorney General of the state of New Jersey, David Willens, who outclassed Houtman's defense team. In every way. Houtman's defense was led by what one article I read. It described him as a shambling alcoholic. (laughs) um, Yeah. Named Edward Riley. I have no idea if this is true. A lot of the stories about him aren't very complimentary. He is also known as the Bull of Brooklyn, and he was a well-known and seasoned criminal defense attorney. Riley not only boasted all the time that he had represented more than 2,000 defendants, but he also said he had attained acquittals for most of them the media is all over it and there's actually some great footage on this it's this real footage it's British Pathé like newsreels I think they used to show them in um movies didn't they at the time it's like yep. those little yep. news snippets but they talk like this hey, here it is Mr. <laughs> Hartman coming up the steps wearing a very smart brown suit it's very everybody talks like this all the time about everything it's fascinating
1: <laughs> so you should really watch it because it's um, I watched it yesterday after you did send it to me, and I I love it. I'm thinking I will start to talk like this whenever I go grocery shopping. You know, like husband, we need more bananas. They are over there in aisle two. I told you to get me sharp cheddar cheese. This isn't a sharp cheddar. This is a pasteurized American blend. <laughs> it's like
0: what? It's crazy. See, it's me? Me. I love everything, it. Everything doesn't this make everything more fun though? I mean, it does. It, I love them. That's the thing. I could watch it all day. And then even worse than that, it's either part one or part two. Then you get the guy, and I'm not going to try to do the other guy's accent but then it's much quieter and it's like here we are in the solemnity of the yeah. court like it's very like and that's then always, it's always when like, it's intact yeah, like, yeah, look yeah. at her hat <laughs> it's, like... <laughs> it's just crazy
1: i love it this case is a hot mess and i guess crazy. the trial was not any different no no
0: so the attorney general really did make the most of what was essentially all circumstantial evidence, the ransom money, the ladder, the handwriting analysis, a very, very dubious eyewitness statement that placed Hauptmann near the scene of the crime on the night of the kidnapping. The prosecution also called Lindbergh to the stand, and he positively identified Hauptmann's voice as the same voice that he had heard shout, hey, doctor, at Raymond's cemetery. Do you think it was like, hey, doctor? <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm also asking myself, how can you, from two words that you heard, a while ago positively identify the man who kidnapped your kid you know it's, the I you can't
0: there's no way there's yes. no way they would allow that in court there's just no way then they, he calls Arthur Kaler he's that wood expert we talked about before and this guy is like the <laughs> nation's authority on wood it's yeah. <laughs> It's, it's really, it's pretty crazy. I think you could actually write an entire book uh, just on the wood the wood testimony and wood evidence. He takes the stand. He gets the hand plane that he took from Houtman's garage, and there's a clamp on it. And so he attaches it to the judge's bench, and he does a demonstration. He planes that wood, and then he takes a piece of like wax paper and like a pencil, and he traces, he does like a rubbing of the wood grain because of the plane that he had just done, and then he repeats it using the railing from the ladder, and it's a perfect
1: match. That's that's like a scene out of a movie. I mean, I'm sure the tension in the courtroom at that moment, that must have been unbearable.
0: I know. He was called the Sherlock Holmes of his era. It was huge. Defense counsel countered all of this evidence rather poorly, so the latter had a dubious chain of evidence providence, meaning it had been sort of all over the place without anybody firmly keeping track of it. None of the crime scenes were ever secured, and that eyewitness that I mentioned who had placed Hauptmann at the crime scene, he claimed to have seen him in a moving car and said that he could identify him. But the guy was almost 90 and almost completely blind. In fact, he'd applied for welfare based on the fact that he was legally blind right before this happened.
1: That's a Cousin Winnie moment. Ah, what a missed opportunity. I know. So even though
0: Lindbergh would have an impossible time really identifying a voice that he heard two years before, he does testify it's the same voice and they believe him and Riley doesn't contest it. He also never contests the identification of the body as that of baby Charles, even though there was a lot of irregularity in the identification process.
1: Yeah, yeah, that situation was very strange. Very quick. You'd think they have gotten more medical cooperation. But what I want to know is, did Hauptmann take the stand himself? He did,
0: and it was bad. When Hauptmann took the stand, he was totally decimated by Wilentz. He made a very poor impression on the jury, with his inability to adequately explain the money and the handwriting testimony. And all the defense really does is just maintain over and over and over again that the money belonged to his friend Fish, They never go after any of the circumstantial evidence. It's no surprise when on the 14th of February, 1935, the jury found Richard Bruno Hauptmann guilty of kidnapping and murder, and he was
1: sentenced to death in the electric chair. Ah man, his poor wife. He's arrested on the anniversary and sentenced to death on Valentine's Day. What did she have to say about all of this? She believed him. She continued to maintain his innocence until her own death in 1994. Okay, I mean, I get it. Sometimes it might be hard to believe that someone you thought you knew so well does something so horrible. I
0: know. I mean, I think we'd do the same if if this had happened to either of our husbands. Of course, I would say he was innocent until the very end of my life. But then neither of our husbands have a long criminal record. On October 9, 1935, his first appeal was denied, and then there was another appeal to the Supreme Court, which was also denied. In December 1935, under really intense media scrutiny, and because there were some new kidnapping threats against their new baby son, John Lindbergh and his wife Anne sailed to England to just get out of the spotlight. Meanwhile, Hauptmann's wife, Anna, appealed to New Jersey Governor Harold Hoffman for a stay of execution on January 16th, 1936, and Hoffman granted that, but following the final denial of clemency by the Board of Appeals, Houtman's execution date was finally set for the 3rd of April. Anna wasn't alone in trying to get them to give clemency. A lot of famous people wrote to say that they didn't think there was enough evidence to put Hauptmann to death, including Amelia Earhart, who wrote the governor wondering if a sort of, I think she was asking about Sculptamine, if I'm remembering correctly, but basically she was saying, you know, there's this new discovery of this truth serum. Can't we at least give him the truth serum to be sure before we execute him?
1: Really, Amelia Earhart, another great mystery right there.
0: I'm obsessed. I wish there was enough information on her to do a whole episode. We'll have to, one of these days we'll probably do lots of short stories. We'll have to talk about her. So in any case, Hauptmann was offered a last minute opportunity to have his death sentence commuted to a life sentence without parole if he admitted that he was guilty. But he refused to do so, and he died in the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936.
1: Hmm. It's interesting, though, he didn't even confess to save his own life. Maybe he was innocent after all? Yeah, you know, that's one
0: of the reasons conspiracy theorists think that he was framed. Uh, We'll get all into the conspiracy theories in a few minutes. But before we do, we unfortunately have to just touch a little bit on the fact that Colonel Lindbergh was actually kind of a nightmare human being, because he plays into some theories, too. Another story where the hero turns out to be not so great? Yeah, you know it. So, brace yourself. Are you ready? In an essay for Reader's Digest in November 1939... Lindbergh cautioned against, quote, a war within our own family of nations, a war which will reduce the strength and destroy the treasures of the white race. He went on to say, quote, let us not commit racial suicide by internal conflict. Well, Lindbergh was definitely not the only person advocating for American isolationism based on white supremacy. He also wasn't the only one suggesting that the Jews were the single most problematic group (laughs) involving the United States in a war in Europe. There was a guy, an anti-Semitic radio preacher named Charles Coughlin. He really embraced Lindbergh's message big time. And Lindbergh's public statements would go on to be the prime impetus for the creation of the America First Committee in 1940. The America First Committee, which had a membership of about 800,000 people, opposed American aid to the Allies and counted Lindbergh as its most prominent spokesperson. And this is honestly all a little bit too familiar with some of the stuff we're still dealing with today. If you want some more information, there's a great article in the July 24th, 2016 New Yorker magazine by Louisa Thomas. It's an article entitled America First for Charles Lindbergh and Trump. He's very opposed to entering the war, he met with Goering a number of times, he was very impressed by German aviation, he was given a medal by Hitler, and he was a really big fan of eugenics, which of course is the idea of creating a superior master race. And this is where the conspiracy theories begin.
1: hmm I see, and this is
0: also where the Nazis come into play. All this let's-not-get-involved rhetoric changed after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Lindbergh tried to win a commission in the military, but President Roosevelt, who privately called him a Nazi, barred him from service. <laughs> <laughs> he shot down his idea, if you will. Later on, Lindbergh did serve as a test pilot and an advisor when he ended up traveling to the war's um, Pacific Theater as an observer. And then as a civilian, this guy man it's just like such a story of rich people getting whatever they want right he goes over on as a civilian but ended up flying around 50 combat missions and even shot down a japanese fighter plane to be fair he also helped to develop cruise control techniques that are uh increase the capabilities of the american fighter planes but i mean
1: uh, at first he's all buttering up then after the japanese get involved he wants to fight on the american side yeah that should have been a hard pass there I know, but you have to think, right? He didn't want to fight the
0: Aryan Germans, but the Asian-Japanese, let's bomb them. Yeah, but
1: they were our allies. I mean, our as in German. I know. know. I don't know.
0: Maybe he was more racist than he was, (laughs) uh, you know. Listen, (laughs) I don't. (laughs) Uh, None of it's good. Not those Japanese (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. So let's really get into the conspiracies now. So one of the first theories is that Hauptmann is innocent. And this one is maybe best represented in a book by Greg Algren and Stephen Monnier. They wrote a book called Crime of the Century, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Hoax. And they think that the baby's death was more likely due to a botched prank by Lindbergh, who was a lifelong prankster and a eugenicist, and they think that maybe he staged the kidnapping in order to cover up his own participation in his son's disappearance and allowed an innocent man to die for the kidnapping that never happened.
1: Yeah, now I remember. That was the book I read. Good Lord, I mean, imagine this being true, killing a firstborn because of a prank gone wrong. Well, was it a prank or was it a... Uh,
0: intentional
1: because we know
0: Lindbergh had been a a proponent of eugenics and there was some evidence that Charlie had some medical issues so he had a deformity on his feet which we mentioned briefly in part one where uh, his toes overlapped his last three or four toes overlapped he had a harder time than he should have standing at that age In the autopsy report, it mentions that the head is larger than it maybe should be. He also had rickets, which is a vitamin deficiency that can cause some bone problems, but he was on a special diet for that. We know that Lindbergh went on to support Nazis in their quest for a master race, But it looks like he was also trying to improve his breeding stock because you should also know that it later came out that in the 1950s after the war, using a fake name, Carew Kent, he secretly fathered seven children with three different women from Germany, two of whom were sisters. He visited them all. The kids knew their dad. They didn't see him that often, but he was in their lives. And when he died in the 70s, Lindbergh believed that that secret had died with him. That's when some of the kids saw the news reports that he had died and realized who their father really was. In 2003, several of his German children came forward and did DNA tests that proved that they were in fact his kids.
1: Three out of families. Uh, I have to admit, in my head now, they're all living in a huge sitcom house together, and every week we can tune in to watch their shenanigans. And the show will be called Three Times Family. <laughs> it's just crazy, right? And the thing I can't get
0: over is these were very long term relationships he had with these women. I don't understand how he was with the sisters and they knew about him. So their kids are cousins and also half siblings.
1: And oh, then. Shermans.
0: Yeah, and then they—they sound like Lannisters.
1: And then the third—the third lady was his assistant. Okay, yeah, he's a supporter of eugenics, and he believed his superior genes should be passed along as often as possible.
0: The interesting thing that I read, I believe, don't quote me on this one because I didn't take a note about it, I'm just remembering it, is that the German kids who came out about the toes thing, I think every single one of his children had that weird, like, hammer toe deformity on their feet, so they all got it from him, ironically, (laughs) yeah. Two months before the baby was kidnapped, Lindbergh hid the baby as a joke to scare his wife into thinking that he'd been kidnapped. She wrote a letter to her mother-in-law the night the child disappeared, the night of the kidnapping. She wrote it in the letter that she initially thought that this was another joke. If you think that he had something to do with it, right, then for me, I wonder if this is something he did just to see how she would react if the baby were kidnapped. Like, if he'd been planning this for a while to sort of, either have the baby put in an institution or given to another family or whatever maybe he staged this just to see like can she handle it or is she going to have a complete breakdown right and then
1: see how mm -hmm. yeah it makes sense that if she handled herself well enough he'd carry out his plan and he get rid of the baby forever so bye bye baby yeah like the Bay City Rollers say bye bye baby (laughs) baby goodbye bye baby (laughs) baby bye bye
0: alright you're going to have to cut that but yes it's all music and movies, actually, isn't it? Everything I realized everything that we do is like a, it's all tied to songs and movies, which makes sense. So, yeah, so if you think that, that Lindbergh might have done this intentionally, so he was getting rid of the baby himself, had a problem on the ladder, dropping the baby, baby dies, then <laughs> that, I know, sorry. I'm... Yeet the baby? <laughs> yeah, he, they yeeted that baby right off the ladder. <laughs> So yeah, if they drop the baby, the baby dies. And then now he doesn't have that much time to kind of cover up what happened. The location of where the baby was found now starts to make sense because the baby was found in a really shallow grave. It was only about two miles away from the home. In in this book, the co-authors theory that he would have dug the grave in a hurry because he was expected to be home by a certain time. And that the location of the corpse is exactly halfway between a home in Mount Rose that the family rented for part of the time when their house was being built and the Lindbergh estate. So a really easy place for someone to get to who is familiar with the area. They also believe that the body of the baby who was found might not have been the Lindbergh baby. There is an entire massive online website for this theory if you like theories it's um www.linbergkidnappinghoax.com it's crazy it's just a huge amount of information and it was put together by a woman named Ronelle uh delmal
1: okay so do some people think it was not the baby
0: Yeah, there are actually a shocking number of people who have claimed and still claim to be the real uh, Lindbergh baby. I even read that one man uh, making this claim sent Anne a Mother's Day card every year for 40 years. It sounds more like mental illness than anything else to me. But there are a lot of people out there who seem to really think that they are Charles Lindbergh Jr. And there are apparently some compelling cases. I just didn't get into all of them.
1: Hey, I mean, even Abe Simpson came to be the Lindbergh baby once, and I think, of course, it doesn't hurt that if he were alive, he's heir to quite a fortune, right? I know, right? I mean, if you or I were
0: to be missing, nobody was going to be like, hey, I'm really the, you know, I'm really the Lindbergh baby or the Annie baby. I'd like <laughs> your like very modest life insurance policy and most of your debt, please. Thanks. There's a Rutgers professor emeritus named Lloyd Gardner, and he wrote a book called The Case That Never Dies, The Lindbergh Kidnapping. That came out in 2004. He's also a member of a group called the State Street Irregulars. They're a group of kidnapping scholars. When I read that, I got a little nervous. Like, it's like when you're trying to do a a ripper case and there's all the ripperologists and you're <laughs> like, oh dear lord, they're gonna come for me so State Street Irregulars please don't come for me, I'm doing my best but if I got anything wrong, let me know but he's got a similar theory that maybe Lindbergh wanted to have his less than perfect child
1: out of the spotlight It's certainly possible I mean, just look at Rose Kennedy and you'll know that wealthy families going to great lengths to hide imperfection
0: Yeah, it really was It's horrific, I mean, it seems beyond... Belief That anybody would do this sort of thing, but it did happen. So he says that maybe Lindbergh could have arranged for a fake kidnapping to create a public cover for placing Charlie in an institution and that the baby's death was just a horrible um, accident with this plan. He talks about how Lindbergh took personal charge of so many aspects of the investigation. He isolated household staff who might have had knowledge about his son's medical conditions and didn't let them be questioned by authorities, including J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. And also following that super fast identification, he ordered the body cremated and scattered the ashes really fast.
1: Yeah, that seemed rather odd to me when you mentioned it before. I know. I mean, I thought at first that he just
0: wanted it to be over and to get some privacy, but if he did do something to the baby, that'd be the way to handle it, right? While Gardner says that for a long while, he, quote, fought in his own mind against the idea of Lindbergh's involvement, he thinks that the kidnapping went too far, and that his child died on a rainy, windy night on March 1st, 1932— it was the first time that Lindbergh inadvertently missed a public speaking engagement, which is another reason he thinks Lindbergh was involved. So he came back from New York City where he worked instead of going to a dinner where he was supposed to speak. Was it just a coincidence or did he do something else and then he covered it up? And I think he even mentions that he might have diverted attention from the boy's bedroom or acted as a lookout to allow the abductor to escape down a back staircase. But I don't think he conclusively states what happens in the book. But like the podcast Serial, I think he just makes a really great case for why Houtman should not have been convicted.
1: It would also explain why Lindbergh, who was a trained military man, doesn't go to investigate when he hears a strange noise in the middle of the night or in the middle of the evening and why the dog didn't bark, right?
0: Yeah, it does. And his being involved is the only thing that really makes sense of that fact. So, you know, if he was guilty, the accepted theory is that he accidentally dropped the baby when the ladder broke. That whoever did this The accepted theory has been that that crack in the ladder, the sound Charles heard was probably the baby, the crack and the bang was the baby's falling to his death, which is awful, and that Charles was, baby Charles was killed instantly, and then the kidnappers pretended the baby was alive to get the ransom note. But I did watch a PBS documentary called Who Killed the Lindbergh Baby, and it features true crime superstar John Douglas.
1: Mm, Most of you will know that name, but if you don't, he helped develop the FBI's criminal profiling unit. He's the guy uh, the show Mindhunter on Netflix is based on. So good. Uh, Yeah, he's also the inspiration for the Jack Crawford character in Silence of the Lambs. So please, please go and watch Mindhunter if you haven't already. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Douglas is
0: the guy. And he, of course, we want to know what he thinks. So right off the bat, he says he doesn't think that Lindbergh's baby's death was an accident at all.
1: Okay, but does Douglas think uh, Lindbergh was involved? No, he doesn't. They talk
0: to Gardner about his theory. So like I was talking before about his theory that Charles had taken the baby. John Douglas doesn't think that Lindbergh was involved. He doesn't see him as being violent at all. He thinks he's got some strange behavior, but not violence. And he also thinks that he was such a control freak that he would never have trusted anyone else to pull this scheme off.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You'd have to trust someone to keep it totally quiet about your involvement. Who do you trust? It would have gone out so fast, probably. So fast.
0: And there's more. So that theory we talked about because there was the accidental dropping of the baby when the ladder cracked. Well, John Douglas and John Butts is a retired chief medical examiner who specializes in child death. Neither of them thinks that this is the case. So in this documentary, Butts talks about how on the left side of the baby's head, there's a skull fracture from the fontanelle uh, going behind the ear. But then there's another round hole in the skull on the right side of the head. And initially they thought when, when the initial investigation was done that this hole was caused when an officer was trying to pick up the skull using two sticks and it accidentally punctured the, uh, skull when he was trying to remove the remains, but Dr. Butts says that never would have happened. He says that there's no way a stick would poke a hole in a skull. He thinks that if the baby was lying down on his left side and was struck on the right side with a pipe or a hammer, then that would explain both injuries. This supports Douglas's theory that the death was intentional. So now Douglas is profiling the criminals and says that these aren't amateurs. He thinks these are criminals who planned this and intended Intentionally murdered the baby.
1: Intentionally, but why? Revenge
0: for something? Mm-hmm. Just for money, it was all about that 50 grand. That's another point conspiracy theorists make that maybe it was Lindbergh because it could have been a lot more money. And if you were going to fake a kidnapping to get rid of your defective son while gaining sympathy,
1: why pay more than you have to, right? Yeah, but only for money, it would have not been necessary to kill the kid immediately. If it was intentional and not by accident, then it must have been about more than just money, I think. So, what does John Douglas think about that? My impression from the
0: Nova documentary was that John Douglas thinks they intentionally killed the baby just so they wouldn't have to take care of him. He thinks Hauptman is guilty. He thinks that 16th rail of the ladder that matched the floor in Hauptman's attic is plenty of evidence to convince him that Hauptman was guilty. But... Douglas thinks that he probably had accomplices, because they only found about a third of the ransom money, so where was the rest of it? He must have had help, and he doesn't think that one person would have been able to pull off the kidnapping alone. You'd need at least two people, one to climb into the room and get the baby, but you'd also need someone spotting and holding the ladder, so there had to be at least two people involved. But
1: once Helpman was arrested, they just stopped looking for more suspects. Yeah, like always, it just wanted the story gone and the case closed. Mm-hmm. But if Lindbergh was not involved, then how did the kidnappers know the baby was home and where the baby's room was?
0: Yeah, that's really very strange. And Douglas thinks that it was probably Violet Sharp. You remember the employee at Anne's parents' estate who drank furniture polish and died? So she'd given some funny statements and then the police came for another time to talk to her and she drank a bottle of silver polish. Police at the time basically thought she was crazy, but Douglas thinks maybe it was guilt and that she had maybe inadvertently told someone and felt some guilt, but we'll never know.
1: I said it! I said it! It seemed like such a huge overreaction there. I know, I know. I mean, it would
0: make more sense. I think John Douglas has a good point there. So I just wish we knew some more about that aspect of the case, but there are dozens of books and articles about this case. I don't know. I guess at the end of the day, I'd like to think that Charles Lindbergh had something to do with it but I think that's maybe only now because we know that this like American hero is really kind of more of a human dumpster fire. I don't know. But I'm not sure. I mean, I really do think Houtman didn't get a fair trial. I also think he's involved. I just think he was not a saint. I think we don't know the whole story. Since the family won't allow DNA testing to be done, we'll probably never know, which would be amazing, wouldn't it? Because all those letters, all those ransom letters were opened with a um, letter opener. So the stamp and the seals on the envelopes are still preserved. So in theory, there could be a DNA test done to see if Helpman had done the letters, but Mm -hmm. it's never been done. I guess I just think the fact that Lindbergh pretended the baby had been kidnapped before and the dog never barked, those are issues for me. Also the fact that he allowed Condon on the case at all. I don't know. It just seems to me like if Lindbergh had that level of control over the investigation, why would he ever let Condon be involved unless he already knew the baby was dead and had nothing to lose?
1: Yeah, right, right. I mean, it doesn't come as a surprise that so many theorists surrounding this case, it's just all such a mess and it has so many things that just don't make any sense at all. This whole case is a huge clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me that many people are still obsessed with it. I don't even know what to think, to be honest. So no idea what could be true, but I do love the prank gone wrong theory just because it would be so insanely horrible. You know what I mean? I have a feeling, though, that Lindbergh and Hauptmann somehow were involved but I guess they never found anything connecting these two guys
0: no there wasn't I always hoped there was too like some small thing that somebody could figure out but there wasn't but you remember Hauptmann did use a ladder to break into the second floor of that mayor's house back in Germany so maybe he just went in after another really well known figure and he did the whole ladder routine again the only upside to this train wreck of a case was on June 17th 1932 Three and a half months after Charlie's kidnapping, uh, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Law, which made the transportation of abductees across state lines a federal crime that was punishable by death. President Hoover signed it into law on June 22nd, which would have been Charlie's second birthday.
1: Yeah, sharp decline in kidnappings in the U.S. after that one. Exactly. Yeah. And some of you might recognize
0: Anne Morrow Lindbergh's name from her many books, uh, including The Gift of the Sea. I thought we'd leave you today with my favorite quote from that book. And I don't know, I just always really identify with this statement. Quote, don't wish me happiness. I don't expect to be happy all the time. It's gotten beyond that somehow. Wish me courage and strength and a sense of humor. I will need them all. End quote. Amen, sister. I will drink to that. To courage, strength and a sense of humor. That poor woman, she really went through hell, right? She really did. She really did. It's awful. She's she's the only person in this that I really have tremendous uh, sympathy for. So thanks for listening. And uh, please remember, as always, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Please rate, review and subscribe.